Amen. Thank you, Brother Dalton, for that song. Uh, wonderful message and song, and, and I really just love the song that we sang before that, The Power of the Cross, and what a powerful song, The Power of the Cross. And uh, thank you, Brother Dalton, beautiful song as well. It's a great day. I just thank the Lord for uh, those who have come today to become a part of the Brian Baptist Church. We're just so thankful for that. If you have any questions about becoming a member of Berean Baptist, uh, if you have questions about baptism, questions about what we believe, uh, questions about how do you become a member, at the end of the service today, right after the preaching, there will be someone at room number nine who can help you with any questions that you might have. If you need someone to pray with, there will be someone there as well. So right at the end of the service in room number nine in this corner of the auditorium right over here. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. And we've been studying for the past few weeks in what I've called, I think every Sunday, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, and this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. One day he gathered his disciples on a hillside next to the Sea of Galilee, and on that day there were thousands of people who were in attendance, and Jesus began to tell these people about being a part of his kingdom. His sayings were very difficult. They were a departure from what the people had heard from their religious leaders. And one thing that we really need to understand as we look at this and study the Sermon on the Mount is that the attitude that these people had toward their religion was very much different from what we see in America today. Now, there was a time in America when... Uh, religion meant far more to people than it does now. But none of us has really ever seen anything like it was for these people in the time of Jesus. The majority of these people who were listening to Jesus were either Jews or proselytes to the Jewish faith. And their religion and their lives were really inseparable. Their religion was their life. And When someone came along and upset what they had been told, it really wasn't easy for them. And it wasn't easy, but it certainly was welcome. And I'll explain that statement just a little bit more as we go through the message. But Jesus gathered these people together, and he spoke in the beginning of the sermon what we now call the Beatitudes. Some people argue about how many Beatitudes there are. Are there seven of them? Are there eight? Are there nine? Well, I I take that there are eight of these, and all eight of them are expressions of blessing. Jesus said, this is the way that you can be blessed. Happiness will come to your life if you make these principles a part of your life. But what we learn here in the Beatitudes is really, what we've seen so far, is just the way of salvation. Jesus is not really giving here a new list of commands, and certainly this is not a legalistic way of salvation. We don't find a formula here that says when you do these things and when you perfect these things in your life, if you major on these things, and that's what will make you a Christian. Jesus isn't given that legalistic way of salvation, but what he's trying to teach the people is that when these things are a part of your life, these things will begin to shine through you when you truly know Jesus as the Savior. And if these things are not in you, then you're not a part of Christ's kingdom. Now, to start the message today on the sixth beatitude necessitates a review of the previous ones. I don't want to make this a very long review, but I think we need to do this in order to show you just the progression of Jesus' teachings. All of it goes together. He begins in that first beatitude of speaking about being poor in spirit. 
And that's a person who is beggarly poor of anything that's spiritual. Really, what we're looking at there is the depravity of man. Here is a person who realizes that he has no spiritual good. He is spiritually bankrupt. And that's what Jesus means by being poor. He's not speaking about being materially poor. He's talking about a person's spiritual worth. And there is no spiritual worth in anyone, which means that any worth that we have spiritually must come from God himself. When a person realizes his spiritual bankruptcy... It causes him to mourn over his condition. He's helpless. He, he, he becomes broken. There's a great spiritual depression because of his sin. And when he comes to that place, then he becomes meek. He humbles himself before the authority of God because he knows that God is the only one who can help him. Then he hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He hungers after the things that will make him right with God. And so he leaves all else behind. He forsakes all. And he wants to own this righteousness that can be had only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so he must have Christ's righteousness given to him. A righteousness that was earned by Jesus' perfect life. And so he hungers and thirsts after that which will make him spiritually whole. And then when this happens to him, his character changes. Righteousness produces a different spirit in him. And so he becomes a merciful person. He becomes a benevolent person. He is a forgiving person. Because he looks at that mercy that was granted to him in Jesus Christ. He realizes that he is deserving of no mercy from God. And yet, God has shown him mercy. And so, he wants to do the same. He wants to show mercy to others. So those are the first five Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and mercy. And now we come to this sixth one, which is the subject today. And this is to be pure in heart. Now let's stand, please, as we read God's word. Matthew uh, chapter 5, we'll begin with verse number 1. Matthew 5, verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Everyone who's here today, we just ask you, Lord, to bless in this message. Speak to our hearts. Lord, show us your word and your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A moment ago, I said that it's impossible to separate the Jew from his religion. And I think this is where we need to begin today because it's beyond difficult for us to understand why Jesus taught these things in the way that he did unless we know something about the background of these people. If Jesus were dropped down into our society today, he would teach these very same truths because these are eternal truths, but Jesus might have taught them in a different way. And so our first task today is to understand the status of religion. The status of religion. What was it really like for these people? Now, when we studied the Beatitude on Meekness, I I gave you a... Just a little bit of the background of the political oppression of the people at the time. 
These people were under foreign occupation. They had become a part of the Roman Empire. They were a subdued people, and they had been placed under a very heavy burden of taxation. Rome was a, was a marvelous government in some sense of the word, but with its tentacles that were reaching out to the farthest parts of the world, it was becoming very difficult for Rome to maintain its hold on the people. There was soldiers that had to be paid. There was administration that had to take place. And it was very difficult for Rome to keep a tight rein on its subjects. So there was this massive cost of troops and and of administration in many different parts of the world. And so what Rome did was to put a heavy burden of taxation upon the people, and it was very oppressive to them. It was an unfair system. It was rife with corruption, and the taxes were high enough by themselves, but you add the corruption on top of that, and there was even a heavier burden that was laid upon the people. When you read the King James Bible, you'll see the word publican. A publican was a tax collector. He, he was a Jew, but he was one who was a cheat. He collected the Roman taxes, but he often took more than what was lawful in order to line his own pockets. And so the political oppression of these people was very serious. But that's not really what Jesus had on his mind. Because his kingdom comes no matter what the world's government is. What Jesus had in his mind was something spiritual, something about the lives of these people, what was happening on the inside spiritually. And before the world scene is ever going to change, there has to be something that happens to man on the inside. And so we turn our focus then to the status of religion. What was it like at this time? Well, to understand this part, we have to understand the oppression of the Pharisees. See, the Jews were living under an oppressive religious system. It wasn't the religion of their forefathers. The Pharisees had instituted a legalistic form of salvation. And to them, salvation came by the laws of Moses. Strict observance to all the laws that were given by God. And and that meant not only the Ten Commandments, but it also meant all the ceremonial laws. It meant all of of the clothing laws, all of the dietary laws. In minute detail, the... Pharisees were putting that upon the people. And not only that, but there were also oral traditions. The Pharisees had heaped that upon the people. They kept adding commandment upon commandment on top of one another, and they went far beyond what God said in the original law. As we discussed in an earlier message, they imposed a system of laws that the fundamentalists today are now calling guardrails. And what it is really is a measurement of your holiness. And folks, it is purely a man-made distinction. And there were so many of these laws that the people simply could not keep them. They kept falling short. They kept breaking the law. And the Pharisees were telling them, this is the way you get to heaven. If you don't keep these laws, if you don't keep every one of them, then you're not righteous in God's eyes. You can't be a part of God's kingdom. And so the people were oppressed religiously. On top of that political oppression, the religious leaders were just driving them into the ground where they had no hope of recovery. And that led to the depression of the people. These people were oppressed, which caused them to be depressed. And so they were straining, they were distraught. They couldn't figure this out. How can I be righteous? How can I be right with God? And they simply could not keep all of the commandments. And some commentators believe that this is the very reason why John the Baptist's ministry was so effective. Without a, without a marketing campaign, without any television ads, without any radio promos, 
John the Baptist became like the Billy Graham of Israel. People flocked to hear him. There were people from all over Israel that came, and they came to learn about his baptism. They come to hear his preaching because they thought, surely John the Baptist must have a solution to this problem. How can we be right with God? Well, they didn't want to be left out of God's kingdom, and so they're looking for that way in, and I'm sure that is one of the major reasons why they came to Jesus, because he came doing even more, even more than John the Baptist did, because on top of the preaching, Jesus was able to perform miracles. And so truly they hoped that they had found the Messiah. Now that leads us to a second task, and that's for us to understand the standard to be reached. These people were actually looking for a proper standard. What is it that truly will make me righteous with God? And that was the driving question in people's minds. It couldn't have been demonstrated more clearly by two men that we find in Scripture who quizzed Jesus about eternal life. Now, both of these men you know very well. One of them was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the teachers in Israel, and yet he too had this problem. He had the question, how can I be right with God? And so he's the one who came to Jesus secretly at night. He was afraid that his pharisaical compadres would find that he'd been consorting with Jesus and they would cast him out. And so Nicodemus came to Jesus in a secret way, and he came to talk to Jesus about this very issue of eternal life. Now before... Nicodemus was even able to ask the question. Jesus knew exactly what it was on his mind because we know by the answer that Jesus gave or the statement he made. He said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he, Jesus was very much aware of this question that was on Nicodemus' mind. The question is, how can I get into God's kingdom? And this is why Jesus responded in the way that he did. But perhaps a clearer demonstration is found in the example of the rich young ruler. Here's a man who came to Jesus and asked him a very direct question. He got the question out. He asked him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in that question, this young man was asking for the standard. Now, let's notice this because this is not just about people in Israel, rulers in Israel 2,000 years ago. It's not just about people sitting on a hillside listening to Jesus preach. It's also a question that's on the minds of people in the world today. People that you meet, they're also asking the question about how can they be right with God. Now, first then, the first part of the real question that needs to be considered is how good is good? Just how good is good? And that's what people want to know. How good do I have to be to get into heaven? That's basically the young ruler's question. It's Nicodemus' question. These are Pharisees, and they're living under the weight of all of those laws. And so they want to know, how good is good? Just how good do I really have to be? And that's the question on people's minds that you talk to about the Lord. And they always have the attitude or usually have this kind of attitude, I've been good enough. And if they don't say that, then they say, well, I'm good, I'm getting better, and eventually I will make it. There are some people that you talk to, and they'll answer this way, oh, I know I'm going to hell. And they say it in a very flippant manner. Oh, yes, yeah, sure, I'm going to hell, and that's a joke to them. But you know, even in that response, do you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, no, I'm not. 
If there's a heaven, I'm going to get there because before I die, there will be some good thing that I will do that will outweigh all the bad things that I do, and I'll make it into heaven after all. And so this is the question on those people's minds. With all the laws that have been handed down to them, they finally just had to ask the question, how good do I really have to be in order to get into heaven? And so that's the question, the young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What good thing will get me there? How many good things do I have to do in order to get me there? Well, the second part of this, the second part of understanding the standard that needs to be reached is really another question. I mean, I mean, here is really the root of it all. This is what will lead us into that cardinal beatitude, the main essential thing that all other things flow from. And this is the real question, folks. How good is God? Now, there's the real answer. How good do I have to be? You just answer that question with another question. How good is God? That's how good you have to be. That is the standard. You have to be as good as God is in order for you to have eternal life, to enter into heaven. Now, do you see a problem with this? You can't be as good as God to get into heaven. I mean, you have to be that good in order to get there. Now, can I see the hands of all the people here today who think that you are as good as God? Can I see hands of everybody who's perfect in righteousness? I mean, is there somebody here that will raise your hand and say, I've never committed a sin, I don't have any bad thoughts, I'm always doing the right thing, I never fall short of anything that's required? Who's going to raise their hand and say that? In Revelation chapter 21, there's a very short, simple statement about what will not get into heaven. It says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever maketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, there is one verse that excludes every single person in this room. And in fact, there is one word in that verse that excludes every person here, and it's the word lie. The psalmist said this in Psalm 58, verse number 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. You know who the wicked are? The wicked's every person in this room because we've all been born into sin. So here is the great fallacy of any system that says that you can get to heaven by things that you do. Whenever a priest hears a confession and he says, do this, say your rosary, say your Our Fathers, say your Hail Marys, give this, do this, do that, and then you'll be back in the good graces of God. Well, when he says that, he's really no different than these Pharisees who constructed their rule book in order to get into heaven. And really, folks, all of those things are just lowering the standard because the standard for heaven is that you have to be as good as God. And so if these people are looking for the next best thing, if they're looking for the real thing that will take them to heaven, if they're looking at some righteous deed that they might do in order to get there, then they're asking the wrong person and they're looking in the wrong place. Because the only thing that Jesus could say to them is you have to be as good as God. Now you think that they were depressed before? Pharisees had their rule book and they had the laws that they gave. You think they're not depressed now? Jesus says, you have to have a standard that reaches God himself. And so what do you do? Do you keep on working? Do you work even more? Do you keep doing all those nitpicky commands? Why? Why do you do it? You'll never be as good as God. And that's exactly what it takes. Now that leads us then to the heart of this beatitude. And that's what the beatitude is about. It's about the heart. 
This is the cardinal beatitude. And by that I mean that this is the very pinnacle of these teachings. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, isn't that the answer to their question and ours? How shall we see God? What is it that will put me into God's kingdom? So thirdly, our task is to understand the symbols of regeneration. Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' non-question was, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. His question, as well as the one that came from the young ruler, was concerned with external things. What must I do? But Jesus' answer has something to do with the internal. What must I be? Being born again, that's regeneration. And it must have something to do with the heart. Jesus said, if you're regenerated, if you're born again, you'll see God. That must have something to do with the heart because he says here, the pure in heart will see God. So what does he mean by the heart? Well, let's talk about the heart for a moment. What is the heart? What's the Bible mean by that? Well, the heart is the core of our being. And I suppose that the best way that I could put it is this way. The heart is what makes you, you. That's the inner person. It's not the physical body. It's who you are really on the inside. Jesus is not speaking about the physical organ in your body that pumps the blood. He's speaking about your mind. He's speaking about who you are. He's speaking about all of your emotions and everything that goes with that. He means the very core of your being. Now, it would help us to understand why we have to be regenerated. And the understanding comes from what God has to say about our inner being. What is our inner being like? Well, interestingly, God responds in such a way that he involves the heart. He uses the heart to explain it. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we have a problem with our heart. Our inner being is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. In Proverbs, it says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So everything that we are flows from our inner being. All issues of life flow from this thing that the Bible calls the heart. And if it says that the heart is deceitful above all things, then what is it that flows out of our heart? Wickedness. Sin, that's what comes out of the heart. Well, what does that mean then? Well, it means that you can't be as good as God. It means that you never will be as good as God. And so all the things that you struggle to do, you're always going to fall short because you will always have this problem. It's a problem with your heart. God says you have to be holy as I am holy. That's it. That's the standard that has to be achieved. You can't get there with this heart that you were born with. Now then, what does Jesus say about the heart of a person who will see God? He says that it must be pure. So let's talk about the word pure for just a moment. The word pure is the catharsis of our being. The word pure in this text comes from the word katharos. It's the basis for our word catharsis. What it means is to purge. It means to purify. It means to cleanse. So our being then has to be purified. We must be cleansed. What was it that David asked for when he was defiled by his sin? He says in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
There's the heart again. David says, I need a clean heart. I need, I need a heart that's purged, one that's purified from sin. How are you going to get that clean heart? Well, do you notice that David is addressing God? He didn't say, I'll clean up my heart. I'll fix some things. I'll get some things right, and therefore I'll have a right spirit within me. No. We see here, he's speaking to God. He says to God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Give me a pure heart, God. That's what he's saying. So here's where it comes from. The Pharisees are forever dealing with the outside. They could never perfect the outside. How much less are they ever going to do anything with the inside? And yet this is what Jesus demands in this beatitude. There must be a pure heart before anyone can see God. And so that means that you and I are hopeless. We can't see God unless God would give us a new heart. You know, this is exactly what God promised to do. He spoke to Ezekiel, and he says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols I will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So how can we keep God's commandments? Is, is that self-help? Is that by self-effort? No. We see here it's God working in us. He, he gives us this new heart. That's what we call regeneration. And that's what he does. He changes us from the person that we were before, and he makes us new all over. Now listen to the way that it comes, because we have some other scriptures from the New Testament that tell us very clearly our best efforts are useless. This is in Paul's epistle to Titus. Now notice how he begins this. He begins by describing what we are. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's how it comes. It's an act of God. It's not by any effort of our own. So you and I, we need a new heart. We need a regenerated heart because that is the only way that we'll see God. Thus says Jesus Christ. That's the person who sees God. So how does God create that new heart? He does it through the belief of the gospel. Our hearts become pure through the belief that Jesus Christ has taken all of our sins. He's taken all of our failures upon him. He substitutes his perfect righteousness in the place of our imperfect righteousness. And so through our faith, Christ transfers his righteousness, which is his perfect life. He transfers that to us. So a clean heart, a pure heart, is one that's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So there you see it. I mean, this is the answer to all of that oppression. It's the answer to their spiritual depression. And if you've been subject to a religious system that keeps demanding more and more out of your flesh, it keeps demanding more and more from what flows out of an unregenerated heart, one that can never be right with God, one that can never be as good as God. If your religion keeps demanding more and more of you, then the thing that you need to do is turn loose of that 
and come to Jesus Christ in faith. Trust him, believe him, because God, Jesus Christ, the Son, has already done this for you. See what Christ has done? He satisfied God. His perfection must be your perfection. His holiness must be your holiness. His righteousness must be your righteousness because that is what is truly as good as God. And when Christ gives you that by faith, you then become good as God. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of God in Christ. Listen to this scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.21 because this is really the summation of the gospel right here. Exactly what happened. For he hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what it takes to be pure in heart. Christ took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. So the righteousness that we need is not our own, but it's God's. And it comes to us only through faith in Jesus Christ. And let me add to that, it should be clear that it comes by faith alone. There's nothing that can be added to it. We are justified in Christ by faith alone and not by any works that we can do. Now then, there's one more task for us. And this is for us to understand the signs of righteousness. We have the status of religion for these people. It was oppressive. It was depressing. We see the standard that needs to be reached, and that is we have to be as good as God. We see the way to get there. It's through the symbols of regeneration. It's a pure, clean, regenerated heart. And we see then next the signs of righteousness. What does that pure heart produce? What are really the evidences of a pure heart, a clean heart? Well, let me give you three of these, and then we'll be through with this wonderful beatitude. The first one, the first thing that it produces in us is sincerity. A clean heart is a sincere heart. It's a heart of integrity. If you go back to that fourth beatitude, it's the heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It's a heart without hypocrisy. It's a heart that seeks every good thing. It can be summed up with Paul's word to the Philippians in Philippians 4. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Sincerity. What else does a clean heart produce? Well, it produces singleness. A pure heart is one that's focused on the things of Christ. Now, again, in Philippians, Paul stated it this way, Brethren, I count not myself to apprehend it, to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. And you might want to underline that in your Bible if you look it up. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In that verse, Paul says, I haven't yet reached perfection. He knew that he wasn't perfect in his flesh. He knew that he fell short. But he never stops pursuing the goal. He's focused on that. That's his desire every single day. How can I become like Christ? Of course, we're talking about someone with a regenerated heart, someone with a clean heart, and a person who is like this. Every single day of his life, he wants to know, how do I live like an inhabitant of Christ's kingdom? 
And so thus, the Sermon on the Mount is for those people. No others can live in Christ's kingdom. These are people with a pure heart, and they give evidence of that changed heart. And it is this single focus to be like Christ. Now, the third sign of a righteous, clean heart is separation. Clean heart is a separated heart. It separates from sin. In other words, it desires even more purity. David said, I hate every false way. And that's the reaction of a person with a clean heart. He sees sin, he abhors it, he separates himself, not only from sin, but he separates himself from sinners. And I mean that he changes his attitude, his look at his associates, his friends, and people who would try to drag him back into sin again. Now, I want to finalize this message with another scripture. Don't put things up yet. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 24. When you come to Berean, you need a Bible because if we're going to be a people that are pure in heart, we must be a church that is cleansed by the washing of water by the Word. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse number 26. In this 24th Psalm, David is about to approach the temple of God. He sings a song to the great king who incidentally is the king of the kingdom that we desire to live in. And so he says, beginning in verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Now in verse number 3, he asks a question. He's ready to go up on the temple mount, this holy place of God. And so he asks a question. Who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He answers the question in verse number 4. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who, who is it that can approach the most holy place of the Lord God our King? Who is it? Is it the self-righteous? Is it those who are self-worthy? Is it those who come claiming to God, see who I am, see what I've done? Now, the answer is verse number four. Who is worthy to approach God? Listen, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So it's the clean one. It's the one who's been purified from his sins. He's the one whose heart has been changed. Now, look at verse number five. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. What is that? That's a beatitude, isn't it? This is the way to happiness. And isn't that the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart. And then what does he say after that? He shall receive the blessing of the Lord. And then what? And his righteousness will come from where? From the God of his salvation. And so there you see the answer to the Jews' question, the the answer to these oppressed people, those who are living under the burden of Pharisaical laws. The answer was right there in God's Word all along. All they need to do is read it. The righteousness that they need is not self-righteousness, it's God's own righteousness. It's not how good is good, it's not how good do I have to be. The question is how good is God And if being as good as God is what it takes, then the only way that we'll see God is to receive our righteousness from the God of our salvation. And that's what he says in that fifth verse of Psalm chapter 24. Now the question for you is, are you pure in heart? 
Have you received the righteousness of God which comes by faith? You only get it by trusting Jesus as your personal Savior. How will you see God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this message that comes from Jesus Christ about being pure in heart. And Lord, as Jesus sat there and explained it that day, there was no goodness that they could produce. There was no work that they could do. To be pure in heart, as Jesus explains it, it must come from God. It must come from Jesus Christ. Belief in him, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Lord, I pray that you might speak to some soul here today. Maybe they don't know you. They haven't trusted you as Savior. But they want to know, how can I get to heaven? And here is that answer. Believe in Jesus Christ and receive the righteousness of God by faith. And that gives a person a pure heart. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to talk about membership in Brian Baptist Church, one who needs to know about salvation, maybe someone who has a concern in their life that needs to be prayed about, I just pray, Lord, that after this prayer is done, after we're through singing or even while we're singing, that they would move, go to the place in the auditorium where they can speak to someone about how they can know Christ as Savior or to deal with problems that they have in their lives. Lord, we just pray that you bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.